So we've had a better priest. We've had a better promise. We've had a better sanctuary. There's one part of the jigsaw left. As far as the writer to the Hebrews is concerned, a better sacrifice. And that's our theme this evening. A better sacrifice. Have you ever ducked because of a shadow? Or jumped because of a shadow? And then you, you shake your head and you grin wryly and you say, Ah, oh, come on, it's only a shadow. Only a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. Last week, or, or just a sentence or two ago, in chapter 9, the writer described the tabernacle and all its majesty as only a copy. Only a copy of the true. And now he says that the law and the things that the law promised, and he's thinking here in particular of the, the ceremonial law and all the blessings of forgiveness and salvation that it held out, was only a shadow. The law is or the law has only a shadow of the good things which are coming, not the realities themselves. The Jewish readers of this letter revered the ceremonial law with its sacrifices. And indeed, they should because they were God-given laws, God-given ceremonies, God-ordained sacrifices. They were really important. They painted a picture. They taught a lesson. But it was only a shadow. They weren't the reality. Like the shadow of an ice cream is a very different thing from the ice cream itself, the good things that are to come. And something better was coming. The writer calls the good things. Jesus, he has been telling us, is better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses. He brings a better rest. He brings a better, better priesthood than Aaron who brings a greater salvation because he offers a greater sacrifice in the true and greater temple. The holy of holies, heaven itself. He is the reality to which Moses and the law and all of the Old Testament were pointing. And so he's written to these readers about how Jesus is of a superior priesthood. How he serves in a superior sanctuary. How he has brought in a better covenant. And you see, priesthood and sanctuary and sacrifice were all bound together in the covenant. And he said, Jesus has brought in a better covenant. He's the better priest who serves in the better sanctuary. And there's one piece of the jigsaw left. Well, what's his sacrifice like? Is it better? Because that's the important thing. And there's two things that he wants us to see here. First of all, there is the inadequacy the inadequacy of endless sacrifices. And then there's the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. And then we'll close with a couple of applications. So first of all, the inadequacy of endless sacrifices. The Old Testament system was set up by God to be a, a lesson, an ABC of rescue, redemption, forgiveness, salvation. So that people could learn step by step what was needed 
for our salvation. And all the different components and all the different parts are going to meet in Jesus. But some of those different components were the sacrifices. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice are set out in Leviticus 1-7. to The burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all dealing with varieties of sin. There's the day of atonement. There was the morning and evening sacrifice. Then there was the grain offering and the fellowship offering. The temple or the tabernacle had two columns of smoke above it. There was the pillar of cloud that marked the presence of God above the Holy of Holies. And then at the other end of the temple complex was the altar. And above it was this black column that ascended all day, every day, a sacrifice for sin had been offered. And that way, it had been that way for 1,500 years. 1,500 years. The writer's saying that stopped. It had made them feel good. It was a crystal clear picture of forgiveness. The price was paid by the sacrifice. But now, in these opening four verses, there are two words that you could imagine would strike the hearers particularly hard. Can you see what they might be? Two words are never and impossible. The law is only a shadow. For this reason, it can never make perfect those who draw near in worship. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those are strong words. They allow not even the remotest possibility that this could work. Never. Impossible. Impossible is one of his favorite words. In fact, in this section we find him using some of his favorite words, impossible and perfect and once and one, and referring to his favorite psalm. Seems to be Psalm 110. Think of that word, impossible. And the, just the way it smashes the likelihood of man ever being able to get right with God by his own efforts. And it's fascinating, is it not? Because Most religions across the world have had the idea of animal sacrifices or acts of personal devotion and sacrifice. And if you do these and if you offer this, you will be acceptable. You will be able to draw near to the God. And that sacrifice mindset, we can still have it, can't we? If I do this, it'll make God happy. Even as Christians, we can be guilty of that. So we need to hear the warning of this passage, where you need to, because we, we can think that if I do this and I do this, God will accept me more. God will love me more. God will, my salvation will be fuller, better somehow, more certain. But the writer strikes a death blow here, and he points out two ways in which sacrifice and a sacrifice mindset or a performance mindset don't work. You see, the whole system was made up of two things, sacrifice and priest. And he's going to point out a flaw in each. So first of all, he tells us that sacrifices aren't enough. Sacrifices aren't enough, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect 
those who draw near to worship. They're not effective. They can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. One writer says that sin offerings couldn't remove the sense of distance. And that's a a helpful way to think of it. They couldn't remove the sense of distance. They didn't close the gap between us and God. The, The worshippers, where were they? After the sacrifice was offered, they were still outside the Holy of Holies. They were still outside the tabernacle. They were still outside the courtyard. They were still at a distance. They didn't close the gap. And hold on to that thought, maybe till later, but definitely next, next week as we go later in the passage. And he gives a number of, of reasons why they're not effective. They need to be repeated. They need to be repeated. He says in verse 2, otherwise they would have stopped being offered. They had to be done over and over and over again. There's a sense of same time, same place, see you next year. At the end of each day of atonement, each time someone offered a sin offering or a burnt offering, they dealt with past sins, not the sins committed on the way home from the day of atonement or the next day. You know, if you have to go to the dentist every week and he has to keep refilling a tooth, it's a fair indication that the problem hasn't been dealt with, isn't it? Well, you've got to keep going back for sacrifices to be offered. It's a fair indication that the problem isn't solved. They they had to be repeated. Another reason they're not effective is they don't clear the conscience. Verse uh, 2 again. um, For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But in fact, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. This word is a legal word, this word reminder. It was used by a court recorder um, listing the misdemeanors for the judge. Here's the charge sheet. And every year at the Day of Atonement they were reminded, Sinner, sinner. They proclaimed loudly to God and man, I've failed again and again and again. They reminded God that we were guilty. They say that God has not yet received an adequate payment for our sins. Every year, like a mortgage, where you're trying to pay it off, but the interest, you're only ever sort of, as it were, touching the interest. You're never paying off the capital. Your payments are too small. They just don't work. Well, sacrifices didn't work. They didn't clear our debt with God. And they didn't work for another reason. They had to be repeated. They didn't clear the conscience. And they were only animals. They were ineffective, verse 4 says, because, now if you've got the the new NIV, it leaves out the word because, the start of verse 4. It just says, it is impossible, but there's a little Greek word that means for, or because. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're ineffective because it's impossible. There's some, for the blood of bulls and goats, there's something about the sacrifice which wasn't enough. They didn't have sufficient weight or value or wrath, like going to pay off your mortgage. And maybe, you know, the way as a child, you know, you would come in and you would say, can I pay with my treasures? And you've got three rose petals, uh, an acorn and a pine cone. And the the bank manager goes, ah, (laughs) not really. Um, That's not going to cut it. Well, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, they didn't have sufficient value or weight. 
There's a huge inequality between our offence against a holy God and our attempts to make it up. Now we know that even in this world, sometimes you can make up for a wrong you've done. You've damaged somebody's car and you, you take it to get it resprayed, um, and it looks pretty much as good as it was. That's fine when it's an object, but when it's a person and we hurt a person, we can't take those words back. We can't undo the harm that has been done. It leaves a scar, so to speak. We can't put it right. How can our little sacrifices appease a holy God? And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers were aware of that. We see it in Psalm 40. The writer quotes in verse 5, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. The writer here is showing them, you always knew this, didn't you? It didn't work. It didn't work. And they knew that. Psalm 51, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In Hosea 6, verse 6, God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. And we could multiply verses of that nature. God didn't want the sacrifices in and of themselves. They were never enough. All that it ended up being was an annual reminder of how much a sinner you were. Impossible. They were worth nothing. God doesn't delight in them. They don't matter in a sense, they're not enough. And that's a devastating truth for the religious world who think that they can impress God and appease God by their actions. It's a devastating truth for us too. We can't buy God off. Sacrifice is not enough. Sometimes don't we think that when we've, we've fallen into sin and we think, well, you know, I'll do this and God will be impressed with me then. We can't buy God off. The second reason they fail is the priests. The sacrifices weren't enough, and the priests couldn't stop. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. You can get the sense of, guys, this really doesn't work. Even in the way he writes it, which can never take away Sins. Notice the words, he stands. There was no seat in the temple or the tabernacle. That was intentional, it wasn't accidental. It was intentional because God was saying, you're not going to sit down in this job. You're going to be on your feet all day, every day. The temple was like a conveyor belt of death, of sacrifice, continuous columns of smoke, daily sacrifices, individual sacrifices, Sacrifices for the nation and for the people and for the individual. Verse 1 speaks of sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year. Verse 11, day after day, again and again. No sooner they offered sacrifices for one person, then what did they have to do? Somebody else is standing there. Here we go again. Another sacrifice has to be offered. There's an old writer called John Brown, and he wrote this. They not only stand ministering, but they stand ministering daily. He's referring to day after day, every priest stands. That's how our version translates. 
He says this, they had ministered yesterday, but today they must minister again, and again they must minister tomorrow and the next day. Every day they begin afresh as if nothing had yet been done. It's like shoveling the water at the sea. You know, the tide comes in and you go back the next and you start to shovel the water out to sea again. Sacrifices weren't enough because they weren't of sufficient value to deal with ongoing guiltiness. They had to be repeated over and over continuously. The phrase never stopped. And this phrase, every priest, there's the idea not just of every priest on any given day, and the next day and the next day, but the next year, the next generation. A long line of priests stretching from Aaron right the way forward through all the high priests of Aaron's sons and the Levites and the next generation down through the long list that you see in Chronicles, down through the centuries. Do you see that queue of priests? Never stops. The priests could never stop. Here's the, the inadequacy of endless sacrifices, the inadequacy of a system based on, as it were, human offerings, offerings that we are making up to God. God had given it to teach a lesson that that was how it had to be. There had to be sacrifice, but not those ones, something else. And that brings us to our second point, the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. The perfection of Christ's sacrifice. The Old Testament had been built around the sacrificial system, so it's going to take a massive argument to dismantle it. And this writer is brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. And he brings to us a couple of dramatic turning points in the chapter. And those, these turning points... Really, if you notice the word when, you'll see the turning point. You'll see the contrast. And they appear, the word when appears twice. It appears in verse 5 and it appears in verse 12. And so we see, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice, verses 5 to 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world. Therefore, in light of the inadequacies, in light of the endless repetition, in light of the sacrifices that weren't enough, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, what did he say? Well, you could scar the New Testament to find the words that are recorded here. And if he had put words that were recorded here, they wouldn't have cut it with these readers. Yeah, yeah, Jesus said that. But so they're almost waiting at this point. What did Jesus say? And then he hits them with something from the Old Testament. A quote from Psalm 40. Words which they will see. Hold on a minute. Yes, sacrifice, burnt offering are not enough. But then somebody, somebody says something. Somebody says then said I, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. What amazing words. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, 
Then verse 7 it says, Then I said, I have come to do your will. That's the same word, your desire. You didn't desire that. I've come to do your desire. Don't you just want to cheer that last phrase? It's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And somebody steps forward and says, I'll do it. I'll do it. The person foretold in the Old Testament in Psalm 40 was the one who would come and do the very thing that God wanted. Well, who was he? Who was Psalm 40 pointing for? Who would say, a body you prepared for me, and I've come to do your will. It is written of me in the scroll. Who was written about in the scroll? That he would be born of a woman. That he would be born to the family line of David. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be born of a virgin. It was Jesus. It was Jesus was written about in the scroll. Who had a body prepared for him? The eternal Son of God. Who stepped off the throne of the universe and into the manger of Bethlehem. A body you prepared for me. You see, God can't suffer because he is he's God and he doesn't have a body but a body was prepared for God the Son so that he could bear our sins and bear the punishment so that he could be the sacrifice a body was prepared for him and he says I have come to do your will does that make you think of anything that night in Gethsemane where he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I have come to do your will. It was impossible. Therefore, a body was prepared. It was impossible for man to offer a sacrifice of sufficient value. Therefore, God the Son said, make me a man. It was impossible for us to do it. Therefore, he did what we couldn't do. I'll do everything that's written in that book. Not just the predictions, but I'll do everything that's written in the scroll. All of the laws, I'll keep them. I'll do it. It was impossible for us to pay and live. Therefore, he said, give me a body and I'll pay. I'll pay. A perfect sacrifice. The very thing we needed a sacrifice of such colossal value, the very Son of God, a sacrifice of such colossal value that it would outweigh all the wrongs his people did and would ever do, a willing and perfect sacrifice, not made of the dust of the earth, but come from heaven, a perfect sacrifice. Do you see? It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's somebody who said, give me blood, and a body, and I'll go and pay. Secondly, a finished priest, verses 11 to 14. Remember, the problem was sacrifices that were of insufficient worth, and then God the Son says, I'll go. There's sufficient worth. Remember, there was priests who couldn't stop because there was always something to do. They were always on the go, always on their feet. Look at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But verse 12, there's our second when. But when this priest 
had offered for all time one sacrifice. One sacrifice for sins. Do you see what it says? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. See the contrast with the rushing, endless activity of the temple? Remember John Brown had said, each day starting afresh as if nothing had been done. There are the priests and they're on their feet and they're going about as if nothing had happened the day before. The day after the Day of Atonement, what are they doing? Sitting with their feet up? No, they're on their feet. At it again, offering more sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifice. Look at this priest. He's seated. Something has been done. Something is finished. And again, he, he quotes and refers to Psalm 110. A psalm is quoted repeatedly throughout. After he had offered one sacrifice, he sat down. And he remains seated. And he's been seated year after year. Something has been done. And one day after another, he sits. And he's been sitting since he ascended into the Holy of Holies. He poured out blood of such infinite worth on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the highest heavens, that he doesn't have to get to his feet ever again. Look at those phrases, for all time. One sacrifice. Forever. There's another of his favorite words, forever. He sits. He sits. Mightn't seem much to us, but think of it. The Jewish Christians never saw their high priest sitting down when he was on duty. Because always there was a sacrifice that had to be offered. It was never enough. But a different priest has arrived and his work is done. And he has cried out, it is finished. Because it's finished. A finished priest. And then thirdly, drawing those two points together, we see an effective sacrifice. Verses 14 to 18. An effective sacrifice. Has it worked? Has it worked? Look at the... Oh, this writer is such an artist. He really is. He's got connections and connections and he's got bookends and he's got other sets of bookends in this chapter. What I mean by a bookend is look at verse 1 and he says, sacrifices which can never make perfect. Look at verse 14, how he sort of closes off a section. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The ineffectiveness was summed up in verse 1, sacrifices uh, that can never make perfect. The effectiveness is summed up in verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Here's another of his favorite words, perfect. He uses it for all sorts of descriptions of Jesus and his work. You know, people chase perfection. This is it. A perfect priest. But what's he done? He's made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. He ha 
Look at verse 10. He says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is something that has done. It's a tense here that means it has happened and its effects continue to this day. We have been made holy. Look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect. It's the same tense. Something that has happened in the past and continues in effect to this day. And in case we didn't get it, he says forever. Made perfect forever. Now that's effective, isn't it? That's effective. Now you might say, ah, but Mark, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect and I am not holy, so it mustn't have worked for me. And your writer is one step ahead of you. Look at what he says in verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Oh, it's not done yet. It's not finished yet with regards to the work in us. But as far as God is concerned, we are set apart. We are counted as holy. The transformation of us is, is ongoing. We are not internally perfect, but we are counted as perfect. By God, because of the stunning value of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week's sin has been paid for. Next month's sin, next year's sin. There's balance here. In God's sight, we are utterly forgiven. The sacrifice has been offered. We are holy. We are set apart. We belong to heaven forever. And here's the balancing side of it. We are being made holy. The ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us, changing us. And that's why he quotes. You know, he, he has pinned an Old Testament quotation on Jesus in verse 5. And now he pins the words of Jeremiah on the Holy Spirit. And he says, listen, this is the Holy Spirit testifies about this. About this being made holy. And this having been made perfect. He says, look. He says, he put my, I put my laws in their hearts and will write them on their minds. There is an internal transformation where God, as it were, has written his word, not just on a page for us, but he's working it from the inside out. He's changing us. We're being made holy. But what does the next bit say? Then he said, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Made perfect before God and being made holy. And there's something lovely. Not even our ongoing need of sanctification detracts from our having been made holy. Not even our ongoing need, our ongoing stumbles and falls and failures detracts from our standing before God. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And he's done it again, our wordsmith. He's echoed a word at the end that he used at the start. Remember verse 3? These sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. But something has changed. Their sins and lawless acts I will be reminded of no more. That court recorder has stopped writing. Judge, you need to remember this and this and this and this and this. The judge said, put the pen down. It's all dealt with. It's forgiven. 
sacrifice has covered all of it. Is our high priest effective? Oh yes. Oh yes, how effective he is. And the Old Testament problem was that adequate payment had not been made, but now it has been made. The Old Testament problem was that the, jo- the job was never finished. Now it is finished. The Old Testament problem was that we couldn't draw near. Cheat. Run your eye forward to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. The most holy place. You and me. Is our high priest effective? Oh yes. Oh yes, what a journey we have been on. If you trace his favorite words, perfect. Or one of his favorite words. We have a perfect saviour. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 28. A perfect saviour entered the perfect sanctuary. That's chapter 9, verse 1. With a perfect sacrifice. That's implied in chapter 10, and verse 7. So that his people could be made, what? Perfect. Forever. Chapter 10, verse 14, and chapter 11, verse 40, and chapter 12, verse 23. Sometimes we want to give up. Why would we give up on such a Savior? Let me finish with two applications. First of all, nothing can be added. Nothing can be added to this perfect sacrifice. It's a perfect sacrifice. It doesn't need any addition. We thought about how that phrase, every priest, describes a long line of priests stretching back to Aaron, his sons, and right through the book of Chronicles, right through the Old Testament, and stretches even down through history, see joining that long line of, of priests, the Catholic priests with the sacrifice of the Mass, never stopping, offering masses for the sins of the living and the dead, trying to add to a sacrifice that is finished and perfect. How tragic. It can't be added to. It can't be offered again. It can't be re-offered or held up to God again, as if in some way that would bring merit to us. It just doesn't work that way. But see too, in this long line, this multitude of, of priests, see too, the good living Protestant, each attempting to be their own mini-priest, presenting their good works to God. In fact, they're not even often trying to put something in addition to Christ's work. They're just saying, well, we'll just do it ourselves. Often thinking that their effort is all they need. That's no solution. Their efforts aren't even a shadow. They're not even really offering any biblical sacrifice. They're only an insult to God. They need the one who said, I have come to do it. It's impossible for you. Not slightly hard. It's impossible. I've come to do it, he says. And you know, see too in this long line, sometimes Christians are standing looking at that big line and thinking, maybe I should join that line. If I do this and this and this, maybe God will accept me more. 
Maybe he'll approve of me more. And we can attempt to be our own mini-priest, trading off with God, maybe trading off our sin or, or trading off our, our own sense of inadequacy. If, if I could do this, but it's not us that makes us acceptable to God. Our efforts will always be inadequate, but there is one whose work is not inadequate, and because of him we are forgiven and adopted and loved and accepted and delighted in. We can't add anything. You know, one writer talks about the performance treadmill. That sense of, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to keep going and keep going, otherwise God will be displeased with me, and I'm not, I'm not keeping up to where I ought to be. We forget grace. We forget grace. We don't earn our way into his favor. We don't atone for our failings. When we do that, we forget the effectiveness of what Christ has done. And we're trying to be our own little priest again. Maybe because it makes us feel better, because we feel like we are adding something. But we can't. You can't add to perfection. So, let me ask you, are you getting your sense of acceptance and salvation and your sense of God's delight in you for what you do? Or from what you do? Or from what Jesus has done? What line are you standing in? The one that's got a huge line of of human beings trying to be their own priest and everybody else's priest? Or a line of, well, one, really? And we're not trying to, in a sense, copy what he's doing. We're just standing behind saying, I'm trusting you that you've done it for me. Nothing can be added And nothing, secondly, can be taken away. Nothing can be taken away from the perfect sacrifice. You can't add to it and you can't take away from it. Your salvation is secured by Christ's work. It's a completed work. How helpful it is to hear these wonderful words. Verse 10. We have been made holy. Done, dusted, finished. Verse 14, one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Those who are a work in progress, those who are being made holy. You say, I'm a work in progress. He says, yes, but I've made you perfect. I'm now making you holy, but you're already counted perfect. You say, ah, but my sinfulness takes away. No, no, no. He says, your sinfulness is, is the job of being made holy, but that doesn't change the fact that I have made you perfect, he says. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Look at those. Made holy, made perfect, remember no more, no longer necessary. We have been made holy. He has made us perfect forever. Our efforts don't get us this salvation and our failures won't lose it for us. Our great fear is that we could mess it up. Thankfully, we're not that important. We're not that significant. He's the Son of God. We can't make His sacrifice less perfect. Nothing can subtract from the value of it. 
And what a comfort that is when Satan accuses us, when our hearts accuse us, when we fall into sin, when we give in to temptation. Do we need to go back and make a few sacrifices? No, the temple's been taken down because one sacrifice has been offered once for all. What if we think, well, you know, I'm so rubbish as a Christian, I should just give up. That's what these people were thinking, I'll just give up. I can't do this. You couldn't do it anyway. It's it's impossible. You know, there's something lovely about that phrase. That he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's a project at work in us. But the outcome is not in doubt. How that should encourage us. It kills fear. It kills pride. It lifts us off the performance treadmill. Nothing we've done can earn our salvation. And nothing we'll do will ruin or lose our salvation. The reality is here. We can throw out the copies. The light is here. The shadows are banished. We have a better sacrifice and a better high priest. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest, Over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we are astonished because the artistry of this half chapter which is exquisite in its skill and how the writer has put it together is as nothing compared to the exquisite beauty and intricacy and richness of our salvation. He has strained at the bounds of linguistic ability and literary endeavor to be beautiful in his writing and We marvel at that because it points us to the incredible nature of our salvation that you would remember our sins no more. That we who couldn't make anything even close to perfect have been made perfect. We thank you for our high priest who has done it all. Who whispers in our ear at moments of self-doubt and self-damnation Uh, In moments of pride, in moments of fear, he says, I have done it. And when it's fear, he says, I have done it. It's done. And when it's pride, he says, I have done it. It's not me. It's not you, these people here. Lord, it's you. You've done it. And so help us to live with confidence 
to know that we have access right into the Holy of Holies, that we know the, the High King of Heaven, the great Lord of the universe, as our God, and that our sins, our past, is absolutely and completely and totally forgiven, and nothing can take away from that. Lord, help us to live with that confident humility, with that exuberant gladness that comes with forgiveness, and help us to live with a delight in our Savior for all that he's done. Lord, I pray for any brothers and sisters here who find themselves either assailed by accusation from Satan or troubled by past guilt or who feel that they need to somehow run on that treadmill of obedience at a faster rate than they're capable of to make you happy. Lord, we all fall into these traps, so I pray for all of us that you would free us, free us from this, and let us enjoy the rest that Christ has brought and is bringing us into. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's sing from Psalm 40 again as we close. Again, indeed. Psalm 40, verses 7 to 11. There is a slight difference in the way the Hebrew in Psalm 40 is compared with the way it's quoted in the New Testament. I didn't take time to explain it. Um, but it's this little phrase, you opened up my ears. The, uh, the New Testament translates, a body you've prepared for me. And I, I think that it's, the Hebrew is perhaps referencing the, the work of creation where God gave us ears. He dug them out, that's what the word is, and how the, he shaped them. And he shaped them so we could listen, so that we could obey. But the writer to the Hebrews, he, he takes it in a broader way. Uh, it's not just ears you gave me, but a whole body you gave me. What for? So that I could obey. To do your will, I take delight. The psalmist says, O God, your will I love to do. Your laws within my soul. That's not us. Except it is us. But first of all, it's Jesus. He said it. And because he said it, God worked and wrote his law into your heart and mine. And the psalm goes on to speak of Jesus proclaiming the truth to us. He said, I've come to do it and I'm going to tell them I've done it. Psalm 40 verse 7 to 11. I will remain seated as we sing in praise of our wonderful Saviour. <clears throat>